Good morning. Morning, all of those here in Baker, joining over in the sanctuary, maybe watching online. Uh, I'd love it if you would join me in your Bibles. Take your Bibles and uh, turn to John chapter 19. We're going to continue our series as we uh, make our way through the Gospel of John this year. Started back in January, hard to believe, and we're almost uh, to the end of the year. But we're here in John chapter 19, which is the account of Jesus on the cross. Uh, we quite often will, will preach on this or reflect on this uh, at the time of Easter, obviously, Good Friday. This is Good Friday, this text, but uh, it, as we make our way through John, we, we explore today the, the death of life. Let's look together. I'm going to read for us, uh, but I'd love it if you'd follow along beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, the three known languages of that area and that time. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, perhaps sandals to one, tunic to the other, robe to the other. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece, top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. How ironic that here they are hanging Jesus to a cross and they don't want to tear his undergarment. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots, dice in essence, for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, four women. When Jesus saw his mother there and John, the disciple whom he loved, standing near her, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your son mother. It's like a, an adoption happened right there from the cross. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I'm in agony. A jar of wine, vinegar, was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to his lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. The Greek word tetelestai, we'll get to that. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies left on crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. When they broke the legs, the person on the cross could no longer push themselves up to breathe, and they would suffocate literally within minutes. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. One of the two at that moment went to glory, as we know, because he had put his faith in Christ even on the cross. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers standing there, as they would do to check if he was dead, they would take their spear and pierce it up under the ribcage into the lungs to see if the lungs had filled with fluid. And sure enough, a sudden flow of blood and water, he was dead. The man who saw it, who did it, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, although secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. He was both him and Nicodemus were actually members of the 70-member Sanhedrin, Jewish Supreme Court, who just hours earlier through the night were part of condemning, although not Joseph or Nicodemus. With Pilate's permission, Joseph came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, basically burial ointments, about 75 pounds worth, a royal burial. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it, the spices, they wrapped the strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden right there. And in, to, in the garden, a new tomb, never before used, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of, of uh, preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The word of the Lord. The death of life. You know, it would be uh, appropriate, I think, customary quite often when preaching on this passage to focus on the crucifixion itself. Perhaps you've heard a, a sermon around the time of Easter on these events, on the cross, on the crucifixion. In fact, I printed out the facts of the crucifixion, of all crucifixions, uh, and, and all of the details of how they would um, first uh, flog a person that would literally bring them down to bare inches of their lives by whipping their backs 39 times because they believed that a 40th would literally kill them. 
and, and describing the, the way that all those crucified would carry what was called the patabolum, which was the, the cross beam, which weighed typically 100 to 125 pounds. And describing in very graphic pictures here how they would take the nails and, and drive them through the wrists and drive them through the feet and the ankles to hold the person to the cross might seem appropriate, as I say here when preaching this, to focus on the crucifixion itself. But as I read for you John's account, did you notice that the actual crucifixion was, was very, if you will, understated? That wasn't really what John wanted us to see. John wants us to see something more, and he's calling us us, today, right now, here, to respond in a very specific way. You see, John's purpose in recounting what he, and I will add, personally saw, John of all of the disciples, is the only one that we know was literally there, an eyewitness of the crucifixion, an eyewitness of these events. I mean, he saw it in all of its very vivid and graphic detail. But his purpose in recounting it for us here is that we, here you go, believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. He tells us this in the purpose statement for his whole gospel, right? In chapter 20, verse 31. These things, these details, these accounts are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. I underline and highlight the word you there because John is, is recounting this for us. And he has a very specific purpose. He wants us to understand that, as Jesus said to Nicodemus back in chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up. That's the cross. Speaking of the way he would die, hung on a cross. Why? So that everyone who believes may have life in him, eternal life. And that leads into, maybe you know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, are you seeing where John's going with this? It's not so much the details of the crucifixion, rather it is our response to what is happening here, that we believe, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a transaction that must occur in our own hearts as we respond to the cross, to what Jesus did. It's as if Jesus is throwing each and every one of us a lifeline. His death in resurrection and resurrection is our lifeline. It is our only hope. Hope of what? Hope of eternal life. Hope of life everlasting, hope of peace, hope of joy, hope of being made right with God. It is our only hope. I'll say it again. John wrote these things so that you will see Jesus for who he really, truly is and find life 
in him. And Jesus, as we see throughout John's gospel and throughout scripture, is both Lord and Savior. We, we use that phrase, don't we, right? Jesus, our Lord and Savior, my Lord and Savior. Those, those words flow off of our tongues, but I want you to pause and think about these things. Jesus is Lord, which means he is the king. He's the king. And he is Savior, which means he died in my place. He saved me. Jesus literally, by giving his blood, saved me. He is the king and the one who died for you. That is the essence of John's account here, right there. He is the king and he is the one who died for you. And I want to do just a, a quick kind of a deep dive into this passage. I want you to really see where John walks us through as he recounts the cross and the crucifixion. First of all, the cross and the sign. There's really five key aspects to John's account. The cross and the sign, verses 16 to 22. Second of all, the old clothes and the new family, verses 23 to 27. The wine and the finish, verses 28 to 30. The piercing and the witness, verses 31 to 37. And lastly, the burial and the garden, verses 38 down to 42. I've underlined 10 words because really when you, when you look at the way John lays this out, he first focuses on the cross and the sign. But he does so, and I kind of scrambled these five points in this manner so that we can see the flow where it ultimately moves to these middle three verses, 28, 29, and 30. That's, that's the pinnacle, not just of this passage, but of all of human history. The wine and the finish, what Jesus did in giving his life all the way to death. And so we see this flow where it begins with the cross, and the sign, the cross, which is a display of the humanity of Jesus like nowhere else in, in Scripture in the world. The humanity of Jesus as well as, interestingly, the deity of Jesus. Two pieces of wood, much like two pieces of this door frame, two pieces of wood through which we see these two very clear aspects of Jesus, his humanity. Matthew and Mark declare for us some of the words of Christ from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never before and never in the history of the world have we seen the humanity of Jesus on display the way we did upon the cross. His humanity nailed to that old rugged cross, but his deity is the other door frame, the other piece of wood, is this sign that Pilate, interestingly, had suspended from the top of the cross. Three languages, which simply states, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Interesting how the Jewish leaders protested, right? No, 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 we want a caveat. He's not our king. We want you to simply indicate that that was his claim. He, he's dying because he claimed. Pilate says, no, no, what I have written, I have written. And what he wrote is this, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, king, the king of all. 
I appreciated these words by a pastor named Donald Sr. At the moment of crucifixion, Jesus is proclaimed as king of the entire world. This is the ultimate reason he is lifted up. That's what John wants us to see. Not the details of what it looks like to kill someone on a cross, but that in being lifted up, he is proclaimed as king of the entire world. He is lifted up on the cross. Thus, each of the deadly details of the execution ritual are transformed. They receive new meaning. The crucifixion is the ascent of a throne lifted up. Those crucified with him are his retinue. The placing of the inscription becomes the proclamation of Jesus' royal status. The multiple language, how interesting that it wasn't just in one language, in all three languages, which were the three languages of the known world in that part of the world. The public site of execution to ensure the universal transmission of this truth. Pilate's insistence becomes the means whereby Jesus' identity is revealed despite the hostility of the Jewish leaders and Roman governor's own corruption. The sense of triumph so transparent in John's gospel, shimmers through the darkest moments of Jesus' life. That's what we see here. The beauty of Jesus being lifted up on that cross, the cross and the sign. Second of all, verses 23 to 27, we see the the detailing of the old clothes juxtaposed by the new family. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, what happens to his clothes? His his clothes are dealt with on the cross. And the ultimate reason that we see that happens is because they were, this was prophesied. Keep your little marker there or your finger in John 19, but I want you to see Psalm 22. I really would love it if you'd turn with me just quickly back to Psalm 22 because I want you to see that this psalm, one before the most famous of all psalms, right? The 23rd psalm. But the 22nd psalm is a companion volume to the cross. They they, they both describe exactly the same event. But King David actually writes these words, Psalm 22, a thousand years before the cross. And he starts the whole psalm with what words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's very interesting. These may well have been David's own thoughts and feelings as he was crying out to the Lord in a song. But as he then is carried along by the Spirit, what happens to David is he begins pouring out of his pen a vivid description of the cross pointing directly through prophecy to what would happen with Jesus on that cross. I am a worm, verse 6, not a man, scorned and despised by the people. All those who mock me, hurl insults, shake their heads. Exactly what they said to Jesus on the cross. He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Many bulls, verse 12, surround me. Roaring lions tear at their prey, opening their mouths wide. I am poured out like water, verse 14. 
My bones are out of joint. My heart turned to wax. My mouth dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I am thirsty, Jesus cried out. But then look at verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. What detail! That psalm existed for a thousand years, and yet they point unmistakably to the cross. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, and John wants us to see He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is so clearly the one pointed to for generations. And yet we also see, juxtaposed with the old clothes that the soldiers were bartering for, throwing dice for. Right beside that is the beginning of the new. Out with the old, in with the new. And you know what this new is, interestingly? I really appreciated seeing this in some commentaries that I read. It is truly the beginning, I mentioned it when I read, of a new family. In a way, it's a new family because from this moment on, what happens with John and Mary? As I mentioned, there was an adoption that took place and this adoption, in essence, becomes the nucleus. The Apostle John, the Mother Mary, two together becoming one family, which in essence, I really believe this, I see this, the beginning of the church, the birth of the church in many respects. How interesting that just chapters earlier in Matthew, Jesus had said, they they said, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are here. Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? My mother, my brother, my sisters are those who do my will, who follow me. You are a new family. We see even from the cross, the old clothes and the birth of a new family. While four soldiers play their game of dice beneath the cross, Gambling for leftover pieces of Jesus' clothing. Fulfilling Psalm 22 to the letter. At the same time, I don't even know how deep this goes or where to go with this, but how fascinating that four soldiers are gambling for the old clothes and four women there, followers of believers in Jesus, are there on the other side of the cross as his faithful followers. And by his first word from the cross, Jesus joins his mother with his beloved disciple in order to form the nucleus of his new family, the church. I see that. I believe that. And that brings us then to the culmination, the top of the the pyramid, if you will, the wine and the finish. These three verses where Jesus simply declares, it is finished. This word finished occurs twice in these three verses. One in verse 28, back in John 19. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, they took a jar of wine, they gave it to him. Out of his agony, they lifted it to his lips. And when he had received the drink, he said then, it is finished. You know that word finished? Is the Greek word, I mentioned this, tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's the only two places in all of the Bible that this word is used. John took the word from the world of accounting, interestingly enough. It's an accounting term which literally means paid in full. Paid in full. 
It is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, this watershed moment in all of history, all the sins of the world were paid in full. Everything came together on the cross in that moment. The great reconciliation of the world with God was finished in that moment. The great revelation of the love of God to the world was accomplished in that moment. The great rout of the devil for all believers of all time, right? Jesus, Jesus conquered Satan in that moment when he gave his life. And the great reality of truth in history was established in that moment. All of these things were accomplished, were completed. And with that, we see Jesus bowed his head. And what does John say? <laughs> gave up his spirit. He didn't die. If we use that language, he truly gave up his spirit to the Lord. And in that moment, he was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him right there, right then. And by his wounds, we are healed. We are made right, made right with God. We all like sheep have gone astray, each turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The work is finished. The question is, do you believe it and do you receive it? And that's what we see here in the last two points that John wants us to see. The piercing and the witness. We see in verse 35, the man who saw this has given testimony. How fascinating that John adds this detail to his account. He's saying, you want to know that Jesus really died on the cross? That he was truly dead? Let me tell you, let me show you the video of the guy that literally did it. He said, he's still been talking about it. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies that you would believe. He testifies that this is Truth, the piercing and the witness are testi testimony to the truth of what Jesus did on that cross. The actual Roman soldier who pierced his side to confirm his death, I believe probably according to what John says, lived for many years testifying that this is 100% true. And then we see the burial in the garden. And what is fascinating about this account of the burial and the garden, it really focuses on two men, doesn't it? It focuses on Joseph and Nicodemus. You see, John earlier had said, Jesus, John recorded what Jesus said, when I am lifted up on the cross from the earth, pointing directly to, to the cross, I will draw all people to myself. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He is drawing us to himself. He is drawing you to himself. He's drawing me to himself. He's saying, please come, come, come and believe I gave my life for you. And how fascinating that John wants us to see that in this act of crucifixion and this drawing of all people, two men, the least of all likely to be drawn to Jesus in this moment are two men that were on the court that proclaimed his death just the night before, Joseph and Nicodemus. 
Joseph and Nicodemus have gained the courage to glorify Jesus publicly by a regal gift of spices and the place in which they bury him. This is the fulfillment of his words. When I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself. Joseph and Nicodemus are the first to be drawn by this account of what Jesus did on the cross. John is very intentional to point out that in the same way that Adam and Eve fell in a garden, we looked at this a few weeks ago, Jesus won the victory in a garden. That's the account. That's the journey that John takes us through. But if I could bring this really to a close, at the end of the day, the question is not, did Jesus die on a cross? I believe that the vast majority of the world that knows anything about the historical Jesus would at least say, yes, Jesus was a true man in history who died on a cross. But at the end of the day, that's not the question. The question isn't even, do you believe he rose from the dead? Although you're getting much closer with that answer. The real question is, and this is the question John puts to each and every one of us. If I'm being absolutely faithful with John's account of the crucifixion, this is the question. Do you believe that he died for you? That's the question. Do you believe that he took your place on that cross? Do you believe that by his stripes, his wounds, his blood, his nails, his death, that it was for you and it was your death, that he died for you. And to say it this way, have you repented of your sin and asked Christ to save you? There is no other way we are saved. No other way. There is no other way we receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, we must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one from the Old Testament, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he died on the cross in my place, and that by believing, we experience life in his name. That's what John wants each one of us, right here, right now, to wrestle with. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and your hearts. And Jesus, each one of us do grapple with that question right now. For many, I would hope even most, listening to me, we would say, yes, I believe, I believe. Jesus, we reaffirm this belief right now. We give you thanks for dying for me, dying in my place, giving me new life, the assurance of new life, the gift of your spirit, sealing my faith. But if there are any right here, right now, listening, who have not said, yes, Lord, I believe. Not just that this happened, <laughs> Not just that you died and even rose again, but Jesus, that you did it for me. You did it to cleanse me of all my sins. You did it 
out of your great love for me so that I might have a way to be saved, that you rescued me by dying and paying for my guilt, my shame, my sin. Jesus, I cast all of my sin upon you. I repent of my sinful heart. I thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. I give you my heart. I give you my faith. I receive the gift of your salvation. The gift of forgiveness. The gift of reconciliation. I receive your gift of life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that the work is already finished. The debt has been paid. It is mine only to believe and to walk in that.